This is the MDT Podcast. A podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. MDT. The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid Podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge to help you look after older people. Hello and welcome to this episode of the MDT Podcast. I am Jo Preston and I'm a consultant geriatrician at St George's in Tooting. And I'm Dr Ian Wilkinson, I'm a consultant geriatrician in Surrey. And we've got a couple of extra special super duper guests in the studio today who you may <laughs> know from I was say, you may know from, from Podcast Past. Uh, so we have Jackie Lelks and I'm a senior lecturer in social work at the University of Brighton. And I'm Chris O'Connor and I'm the consultant Admiral Nurse and I'm based down at East Surrey Hospital. And also with this episode we've had help from Philippa Christie, who is a core medical trainee at East Surrey Hospital as well. And also um, Pam Trangmar, who's a physician associate that works with me, has helped us prepare some of the information for this episode. Chris, you've got a new job title, haven't you? Mm-hmm. So just recently, um, I've, I've been the nurse consultant for dementia at East Surrey Hospital for coming to two years. Um, and just recently, I've, we've linked up now with Dementia UK and I get support from Dementia UK. So therefore, I'm an come under the Admiral Nursing Service. Um, there's not many in hospitals. There's about six or seven of us, I think, across the country. Um, there's about 200 Admiral Nurses. Now, people always say, what is an Admiral Nurse? Mm. And I say, have you heard of Macmillan Nurses? And everybody usually nods and go, yes, because there's about 5,000 Macmillan Nurses. Um, and Macmillan Nurses provide support to families of people with cancer. And in a similar way, Admiral Nurses provide support to families of people living with dementia. Uh, the, the name Admiral Nurse comes from... Um, it's nothing to do with the Navy and nothing to do with car insurance, uh, just to get that clear as well. Uh, one of the main benefactors is a guy called um, Joe Levy, was a, was a financier and um, was very into sailing. He was affectionately known as um, Admiral Joe. He developed vascular dementia uh, later in life and his family then um, wanted to support Dementia UK and, the, and support people, families living with dementia. So they, um, they decided to name the the, the the nurses, Admiral Nurses, after Joe. So okay. that's hence why we're Admiral really Nurses. Nice. <laughs> so coming up this week, we have a discussion about what might constitute a deprivation of liberty. Mm-hmm. When we're going to consider uh, the Dole's application process. To help you to be able to explain Dole's to a family member and how to register a Dole's for a patient. And we're going to have a think about understanding that Dole's are in existence for a reason to protect vulnerable people. Mm. But first, social media this mm. week... What do you have? What do I have? I have two fantastic tweets from the Care of the Elderly Department in Bangor in Wales. The first of which I got by Linda Dykes, who is a, an emergency department consultant in Bangor. And the mm-hmm. second directly, I then found her that, that and then found it from the, the Coty Bangor group. And it's two laws of admission avoidance. Okay. Okay. And they do, there's some really great graphics with them that I will um, put on the show notes. So the first law is that hospitals are like black holes. The effort required to overcome the hospital's gravitational pull is inversely related to the distance the patient is from the hospital when you assess them. (laughs) (laughs) The laughing means it's true. And then the second is the second law of admission avoidance is the likelihood of being able to keep a poorly patient at home diminishes every second after 10am and is almost impossible by 3pm. And I think that's I like also that. very that's true. good. Yeah, yeah. I like that. So I'll put links to both of those into the show notes. Yeah. So mine is an article that I found on Twitter published in the Postgraduate Medical Journal 
um, and it was a reflective article um, based around a book and it's called Whatever Happened to Silence? And this is an article um, talking about the use of silence in medicine um, and it's based on a book called Silence in Science, which sounds really interesting, um, and how silence can be really helpful and therapeutic. I think the use of silence is, is something that we don't uh, appreciate enough of, actually. I think. No, and really, really powerful and can mm. generate a lot. OK, so this episode is focused on the deprivation of liberty safeguards, commonly called the doles. So the deprivation of liberty safeguard is a procedure prescribed in law when it is necessary to deprive of their liberty a person who lacks capacity to consent for their care or treatment in order to keep them safe from harm. You can tell it's a legal definition, can't you, from, from the way it was written round? Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> Put yeah, a person yeah. first, you have to say the thing first. So practically... So Article 5 of the Human Rights Act, it states that everybody has the right of liberty and security of person that no one shall be deprived of his or her liberty unless in accordance with the procedure prescribed in law, which is why... So essentially, we are allowed to be at liberty and be our own selves... Yes. ...unless the law says not. Yes. Right, OK. So if you're going to legally deprive somebody of their liberty, then obviously there has to be a process yeah. mm. to do that, which is where dolls comes into being really because sometimes obviously if it, it, uh, deprivation of liberty only applies when somebody has lost capacity so and sometimes obviously they don't necessarily make a decision that's best for them with respect mm. to sort of you know where to live or treatment for them um, and therefore the the dolls is put in place to ensure that that the, where they live or the treatment that they receive is monitored and is appropriate for that person. So it it should only be used when it's unavoidable and obviously every effort should be made, first of all, to maintain the person's liberty um, but also if we are going to use it, it's got to be the least restrictive sort of option mm. for that person as well. I think it's quite interesting to look at where this came from and, and why we have this, not just by principle, but actually how it came about mm. into law. Mm. It's something called the Bournewood case. Mm. And so the, 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 the safeguards were introduced in 2005 because the European Court of Human Rights decided that in the Bournewood case, our legal system did not give adequate protection to people who lacked the mental capacity to consent to care or treatment and who needed limits to put on their liberty in order to keep them safe from harm. So since then, the case law has provided a bit more nuance to the process. Mm. But I think it's useful to go back to the beginning and think about the case of Mr L. Mm. So he was a 49-year-old man with autism who lacked capacity uh, to make decisions about where he wanted to live and uh, a whole range of things, actually. He'd lived in the Bournewood Hospital since the age of 13 and for over 30 years. In 1994, he was discharged into the community to live with an adult foster placement with uh, the carers, Mr and Mrs E. Three years later, on the 22nd of July 1997, Mr L became agitated at a day centre he attended and was admitted to the Accident and Emergency Department at Bournewood Hospital under sedation. Due to the sedative, Mr L was compliant and did not resist admission, so the doctors chose not to admit him using powers of detention as part of the Mental Health Act. He never attempted to leave the hospital but his carers were prevented from visiting him in order to prevent him from leaving with them. 
For about three months in 1997, he was an inpatient at the Bournemouth Hospital. He was not detained under the Mental Health Act from 1983. Rather, he was accommodated in his own best interests under the common law doctrine of necessity. He bought legal proceedings against the managers of the hospital, claiming that he'd been unlawfully detained. The High Court rejected the claim and it held that he had not been detained and that any detention would have been in his best interest and therefore lawful. The Court of Appeal disagreed and they took the view that he had been detained and that as such any detention would only have been lawful if done under the auspices of the Mental Health Act. It then went up to the House of Lords, which reversed this decision and effectively agreed with the High Court. And finally, it went to the European Court of Human Rights, which agreed with the Court of Appeal and found that he was detained and so that his right to liberty, as per Article 5 of the European Court of Human Rights, as we said, would have been engaged um, so that he wouldn't have been at liberty. Um, and further, they said that detention under common law was incompatible with Article 5 because it was too arbitrary, it didn't have sufficient safeguards such as were present with those patients under the Mental Health Act. So as such, in 2009, the Deprivation of Liberty Safeguards came out, uh, which was inserted into the Mental Health Act. Uh, mental Capacity Act. <laughs> so I remember when this case first came out, I was working in, in mental health in, uh, in south-west London and um, in dementia, and there was a big concern whether this, this, high, this European court ruling would mean that all people using the hospital would therefore be under the auspice of the Mental Health Act. Now, it's quite a clunky and... Um, not necessarily clunky, but it's a, it's, a, it's a big process, and suddenly to have everybody under a section under the Mental Health Act would have been quite a big administrative sort of yeah. task, and mm. actually, to what benefit... It did cause a lot of concerns. Obviously, that's when the Mental Capacity Act thing kind of made a bit more sense of, of that because I think there was a concern that everybody with any kind of cognitive impairment and then the people with head injuries and everything was going to be mm. detained under the Mental Health Act, which would have been... And there's still quite a lot of confusion with the dolls and how it's applied in, mm. in practice, isn't there? And so most hospitals will have a sort of dolls lead or a dolls team. If you're not sure, you can mm. sort of bounce this off mm. and, and kind of get some opinion. But hopefully by the end of this, you'll have a better idea. There's a really good blog I just want to plug called <laughs> The Small Places, and it's thesmallplaces.wordpress.com. And it's a really good blog that goes into a whole range of... Um, aspects of mental capacity and deprivation of liberty, mm. but particularly the history for Mr L is written really, really well in that book. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. And so there's no specific definition of deprivation of liberty in the Mental Capacity Act, and that's the 2005 version. Um, but decisions must adhere to the European Court of Human Rights, um, who states that the deprivation of liberty has three elements. One, an objective element of confinement in a restricted space for a non-negligible period of time. Two, a subjective element that the person has not validly consented to that confinement. And thirdly, that the detention being attributable to the state. There's no clear line as to when normal care becomes a deprivation of liberty. There is guidance in case law, and we'll go through some of that later on. And there's a sort of grey area in the middle that you might call restriction of liberty, and we'll, we'll talk about some examples of that as well. But there's no clear, definite, this is this, this is no. that. No, it's one of, in, uh, one of a degree of intensity is what the Mental Capacity Act talks about, the case of practice. Um, and it, they sort of envisage it upon a scale, really. So you're moving from restraint or, uh, or restriction to deprivation of liberty. Mm. And obviously that's the role of the best interest assessor and the Section 12 
doctor to come to the decision that actually this is a deprivation and not a restriction. So. Mm-hmm. The Mental Capacity Act allows restrictions mm. and restraint to be used, but only if they're used in the, the wider best interests of a person who lacks capacity to make the decision themselves. Um, in addition, I guess the restrictions and restraint must be proportionate to the harm the caregiver is trying to prevent happening. Yes. Mm. Um, and it can be difficult to tell whether a restriction of liberty is actually a deprivation mm. of liberty requiring the authorisation and the, the dolls process. Um, and I think the Law Society provides some really good guidance as to help uh, professionals work out if a dolls application is required. And there's a list of some some of the restrictions mm-hmm. from some case examples that have been found in care homes, hospitals or even private dwellings. So these are restrictions. These are not deprivations of liberty. So things like a keypad entry system, some assistive technologies like sensors or surveillance, observation and monitoring. So also if you're expecting the sort of person just to stay in the same room all the time and in the same place as well. Um, or if somebody's only allowed to go into the community when they're escorted by someone else. Restricted opportunities f- for access to fresh air and activities. Um, and this could be including with the staff shortages, so with this not, not inadequate staff to support the person to do that. Uh, set times for um, refreshments or activities. Limited choice of meals uh, and where to eat them, so not having a dining room, etc. And set times for visits and visiting. Mm. So there's some examples of things that are restrictions mm. Uh, mm. on your liberty rather than a deprivation of your liberty. So conversely, the courts have identified certain pointers which might suggest that someone's more likely to be deprived of their liberty rather than just having it restricted. And those are things like a person who wants to leave but is being stopped from doing to, doing so, either by staff or a locked door, for more than a few hours. So going back to that substantial amount of time. Um, if a person is given a medication as a sedative to stop them leaving because that's still restricting them. If the staff at the home or the hospital take control of their life, so they decide if and when they can have visitors, who they can speak to on the phone, when they can go out of the building and so on, and that impacts on their ability to maintain normal social contacts. If the, as in the Bournewood case, the hospital or the care home um, will not release into the care of other people mm-hmm. the patient uh, unless they consider it appropriate. And that was the thing with the Bournewood case, is that the, the carers wanted to, uh, the foster parents wanted to, to take them home and they were mm. refused. Yeah. Another thing that's quite interesting is a person who um, loses their autonomy because they're under continuous supervision and control. So those things would definitely constitute deprivation of liberty mm-hmm. and then some of the restrictions is kind of the other end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can just sort of be aware of where you are on that spectrum and do things to try and reduce the risk of depriving someone of their liberty by having a really structured decision-making process for each patient with a regular review and thinking about the reasons that you're making each decision with with nice clarity. I think this is a really important point, isn't it? Because lots of what we're doing is always with a good intent to to help someone. We want to help people, but sometimes in doing that, we can accidentally end up depriving someone of their liberty by not thinking about it so mm. having that structured approach and that kind of schedule can be really helpful to to yourself as a kind of mm. a point check really isn't it to kind of say yeah okay what am I doing here is it still the right thing where are we at it's really important to document that decision making yeah. as well isn't it mm. and sometimes the writing of it can help you to clarify mm. your thinking as yeah. well yeah so doing things like a formal assessment of capacity and mm. um, doing good care planning and documenting it I think before admitting someone to a hospital mm. or a care home where you may need to deprive someone of liberty, considering is there a less 
restrictive option mm. um, that you could you could use with the same outcome. Mm. For example, you know, could could you give intravenous antibiotics at home rather than bringing someone to hospital um, for that, you know, and such like. So again, picking up on the point around the importance of carers, so actually maintaining that. Um, that context between the patient, and the carers, and friends and relatives is maintained throughout the throughout the admission, um, and where there isn't carers, and when the decision around deprivation of liberty is made, that there's a an advocate working on in the best interest of that person. So I think mm-hmm. often we forget about that. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think in mental health, it's a bit more straightforward. People are either formally admitted or informally admitted, and there's the whole issue around de facto detention if someone tries to leave. Mm-hmm. In general hospital, it's a, it's a little bit. You seem to be doing things in the best interest because somebody's mobile and wants to leave. And that they're, you know, they've got a dementia, or, or you know, they're they're cognitively impaired. It's it's natural for people to prevent them going out. But actually, yes. we need to think from a sort of legal point of view: are we are we holding this person against the will? Is it is yes. it is this often? I say, is this is this a de facto detention? They look yeah. at me blankly. Well, are we stopping them from leaving? Yes. yes. What or we, would we stop them from leaving? It? Yeah. Or would we stop them what from leaving? If they protect tried? them yeah. from you know, from leaving the hospital. So, and also that we're for using some formal. Um, tool or mechanism and, and the mental health act is like i said earlier is quite a clunky tool but the mental capacity act is for that very reason mm. yeah and so, and so it's reviewed and so that it's reviewed regularly as well and that's that's where it's picking up another point it's really important that it is doc- clearly documented and reviewed regularly mm. i think that's an interesting point it isn't that they necessarily are trying to leave it's about what would you do mm-hmm. if, if they, they try yeah. to leave yeah. so the person doesn't have to physically be doing something for you to be uh, required to consider whether it should be a dolls. Yeah. Mm. And I think dolls is, well, I know dolls is only applicable when someone does not have capacity. So yes. I think it is useful just to think about the main principles of the Mental Capacity Act here yeah. at this point. Which we've done an episode on. It was one of our very early ones. And yes. I designed quite a jazzy 70s, 60s ish infographic. Infographic, which I'm still very proud of. So go and check it out. Um, but if you don't remember what that looks like i mean what's wrong with you but we're gonna run through it now so the starting point of any assessment must have the five core principles of the mental capacity act which are an assumption of capacity unless it can be established that the person lacks capacity so not to treat a person as unable to make decisions unless all practical steps to help them do so have been taken without success the person is not to be treated as unable to make a decision merely because they make an unwise decision in the infographic, we reference all 80s fashion. For that that's, the best. <laughs> that's the best one. We're all allowed to be stupid. We are all allowed I, to be I, stupid. I think of that myth. Anacentric. Yes, yes. <laughs> the fourth is an act done or decision made under the MCA for or on behalf of a person who lacks capacity must be done or made in their best interests. Definitely written legally. Yeah. And before that act is done or the decision is made, regard must be made as to whether or not the purpose for which it is needed can be effectively achieved in a way that is less restrictive to the person's rights or freedom of action. So not everyone that lacks capacity requires a doles, but it must be assessed on a person-by-person basis. And will any of the care that you're going to provide be restrictive or um, a deprivation of liberty in any way? So thinking about when someone might need to be assessed for whether they might have a deprivation of the liberty. So there are a number of these. So the first bit is if somebody lacks the capacity to consent for the arrangements made for their care or treatment. If those arrangements amount to a deprivation of liberty and are in the person's best interest to protect them from harm. If those arrangements are proportionate uh, in response to the likelihood or the seriousness of the harm. If there is no less restrictive alternative 
and if the authorisation is recommended by a best interest assessor following the Dole's assessment process that we're going to talk about in a second. So I think it's just also important to remember that um, because when we think about Dole's, we predominantly think about hospitals and rest homes or nursing homes. But you can also have a Dole's in a domestic setting now. Um, And if that was to be the case, if you felt somebody was being deprived of their liberty in their own home, um, the social worker on behalf of the local authority would need to apply to the Court of Protection to authorise that deprivation. Mm, So it's slightly extended beyond where it originally was when it first came out. It was only around rest home, nursing home and hospitals, Mm. but domestic setting dolls are now in place. Mm. So in March 2014, so four years ago, Mm. uh, just over four years ago, the Supreme Court issued a judgment in relation to the deprivation of liberty in a a couple of cases. One was P versus, versus Cheshire West and Cheshire Council. And the other was P and Q versus Surrey County Council. Mm-hmm. Um, and they clarified what situation might constitute when someone can legally have their liberty taken away. And this has become quite widely known as the acid test. Mm. And there's essentially two questions. Yeah, so you need to um, consider whether that person is free to leave. So, as we said, it's not about they, they are actually expressing a wish to leave, but what would you do if that person actually did mm-hmm. physically try to leave and would you prevent them from leaving or restrict their, their ability to go? Um, and is that person under continuous supervision and control as well? But it's also then also important to consider, this is where the lack of capacity comes in, because it's important to consider, can that person consent to that level of supervision and control because if they can then it's not a doll's mm. if they can't then you should be considering whether this needs a, a deprivation of liberty assessment and obviously the place where they are also has to be imputable to the state so in, in other words the state is responsible for that mm. placement either in a hospital or as a, in a, a mm. residential yeah. Um, or nursing home, as I said, well, just sort of leaving aside the domestic bit, which makes it slightly more complicated. Mm. And there are a few things that are not relevant to the application of the test, mm. and that's the person's compliance or lack of objection. Yeah. So just because they're not trying to leave doesn't yep. mean that, that well, they're not able not to object. Yeah. Yep. As in the Bournemouth case, because mm-hmm. it's sedated. The relative normality of the placement, which means that the person should not be compared with anybody else. Mm-hmm and the reason or purpose behind the particular placement. So it's just the act of it, it's really, rather the than the, yeah. the the reasons mm-hmm. behind yeah. it. Yeah. OK, so we've... I think if you go through those acid test questions, so is the person free to leave? Is the person subject to continuous supervision and control? And you think about some of the, the things we've thought about as restrictions of liberty and then deprivations of liberty, we then ultimately come to a point that someone is being deprived of their liberty correctly or necessarily rather I guess the question is and then we want to think about how is how do you do this what is the practical steps mm. behind this um, and in a hospital or a home I guess maybe we should think about there are two sections to this aren't there there is the managing authority and mm-hmm. then there is a supervisory body mm-hmm. yeah so the managing authority is the home and the hospital yeah so there the, that's where it's taking place yes yes and the supervisory body, therefore, is the local authority. Yeah. So the managing yeah. authority. If so, if the home or the hospital are aware that somebody is potentially being deprived of their liberty, 
they have a duty then to make a referral to the supervisory body, which is the local authority. So they have to make the referral and obviously explain to them that this person is uh, being likely to be deprived of their liberty. Yeah. And that's the standard authorisation. It's, it's, standard it's called a form, isn't yeah. it? Okay. I mean, they do have the ability to give themselves an urgent authorisation for seven days, which they can extend by a further seven days, but mm. no more than 14 days, mm. so that obviously they can legally deprive somebody whilst uh, this assessment is get, taking place. Because some people get... Um, it might be an emergency and, and therefore, you know, somebody's very quickly brought into hospital or brought it, taken to a mm. care home and so therefore they can give that authorisation to themselves uh, initially. Yeah, because I think that's one of the things, isn't it, that the 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 deprivation of liberty safeguard sits with the managing authority. So if you, if you live in care home Y and you are brought into hospital, the yeah. dolls doesn't follow doesn't with, with you. you no. No. So your hospital would, would do their own... Yeah. Yes, if yeah. it were needed, they yeah. would do it again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think it's really important as well that the, you know, we know under the Mental Capacity Act that people need to be... That their thoughts and wishes need to be part of, of being involved in that assessment. And it's the same with, uh, with adults. You'd want family to be present uh, as that assessment is taking place. So it's also important that the managing authority notify the supervisory body, the local authority, if the person is unbefriended, if there is nobody who can be with them. Because as well as then appointing the best interest section, uh, assessor and the Section 12 doctor to do the uh, assessment, they can also instruct an IMCA so an independent mental capacity advocate to be present and to support the person as this assessment is completed. Yeah. I think that's quite important. Yeah. Uh, so we've just said that urgent authorisation is seven days, but standard authorisation, they have 21 days to decide yes. whether it's issued. Yes. So in hospital, we often use the urgent authorisation um, to legally deprive somebody of their liberty. So, uh, And often it's you know, a little late at night when somebody's coming in an emergency mm. That, that then kickstarts the process mm. and often that's when the, the standard authorisation would either be decided on mm. within that time. But it gives us, because often people worry, well, it's middle of the night, what do we do? So that it, it, it is a holding power, but with that going down, the, the mental yeah. health factor yeah. holding power. I guess that leads us on to thinking about the actual practicalities of mm. assessment. So there are two assessors yes. and six assessments, yes. essentially. So the first assessor is a best interest assessor. It's often a qualified social worker, but doesn't have to be. It can be a nurse and an occupational therapist or psychologist, some examples. And it's their responsibility to undertake that assessment of the person and to come to some conclusions about whether or not they believe this person should legally be deprived of their liberty or not because they could come to the conclusion that actually this person has capacity for example and therefore mm. would never be under adults yeah. mm -hmm. and then the second assessor is the mental health assessor and it's usually a doctor uh, usually a psychiatrist um, or a geriatrician or a gp um, with experience in dealing with mental disorders and they've had extended training in the, the dolls process uh, and the mental health assessor decides that the person is suffering from a mental disorder or not, and this covers a range of conditions, but it also includes dementia, long-term effects of, of brain injury or, or learning disability. And the assessment needs to be determined whether the conditions are met to allow the person to to be deprived of the liberty uh, under the safeguards, which is determined by using the following six assessments. So those six things. Mm -hmm. First of all, is an age assessment. This is quite quick. Are they over eighteen? Yes. Second is the mental health assessment. 
And that's confirming that the person has been diagnosed with a mental disorder with, within the meaning of the Mental Health Act. And that mental health assessment, so if they do have a mental disorder, then that would be relevant under the Mental Health Act? And then you kind of would stop your assessment there. Yes, because mm. you can't use you look at the mental yeah. health act rather yeah. than the mental capacity. Yeah. The third one is the mental capacity assessment. So to see whether that person has capacity to decide about their care and support needs uh, or accommodation. The fourth is a best interest assessment. So that's to see whether the person is or is going to be deprived of their liberty and then whether it's in their best interests. So that should take into account things like uh, values or views that they've expressed in the present or in the past and also the views of their friends, families and formal carers or anyone who expresses an interest in the person and any professionals who might be involved yeah. in their care and know and um, be able to advocate on their behalf. Mm. Kind of as per the rest of the Mental Capacity Act, actually. Yeah. It's, it's a wider best interest, isn't it? Yeah. Because the dole sits within that act, yeah. so that's always your starting yeah. point. And then the fifth is an eligibility assessment. And that's to confirm that the individual is not detained under the Mental Health Act or subject to a requirement that would com conflict with the deprivation of liberty safeguards. That might be something where, for example, someone's required to live somewhere else under the Mental Health Act, guardianship or for community treatment order, something mm. like that. The final bit is a no-refusals assessment. And that's really to make sure that the deprivation of liberty doesn't conflict with any advanced decision that the person has made or any decision from a lasting power of attorney for health and welfare or a deputy appointed by the Court of Protection. And if any of those conditions are not met then a deprivation of liberty cannot be authorised. Let's just quickly whiz through them again. So there's age assessment, mm -hmm. there's a Mental Health Act assessment, mm -hmm. Mental Capacity assessment, Best Interest assessment, Eligibility assessment, and then a No Refusals assessment. And then the authorisation must then be in writing. It must include the purpose of depriving the person of their liberty. It must state why the supervisory body considers the person to have met the legal conditions requiring a dole's and it contains any conditions attached to the authorisation. For example, any steps needed to maintain contacts with people or meet their cultural needs. Next, we're going to talk about what happens if that authorisation is refused. If any of the criteria for the six assessments are not met, then the supervisory body must refuse the authorisation. Yes. Um, and then the managing authority, so the people looking after the patient, then must ensure that the person's care is arranged in a way that does not amount to a deprivation of liberty. And the supervisory body or a relative, or anyone else who's commissioning the care, has a responsibility to purchase a less restrictive care package in order to prevent a deprivation of liberty. Mm. So it kind of forces forces the hand a little bit. Yeah, so they'd be able to um, leave the property if they said, oh, you know, yep. I want to go out and I'm going now, you wouldn't have any uh, legal powers to stop them from doing that. Mm. Or if they said they wanted to return home. So if there isn't anybody, like a, a family member or a friend, who can support that person in their decision-making and the assessment procedure for dolls, then you might need to consider an IMCAS, an independent mental capacity advocate, who can um, advocate on that person's behalf. And finally, I think the Court of Protection. Um, the Court of Protection was created by the Mental Capacity Act in 2005 to oversee actions taken under the auspices of the Act um, and includes those uh, relating to dolls. And the case is only taken to the Court of Protection if it's not been possible to resolve the matter between the managing authority and the supervisory body, um, either by asking for an assessment to be carried out or a review of the existing authorisation. Um, and that may be in the form of a formal complaint. And a number of, uh, there's a number of sort of different ways to get into the Court of Protection. 
One could be the person who is being deprived of their liberty bringing a case. The second could be an attorney working under a lasting power of attorney. Uh, the third could be a, a court of protection appointed deputy. And the Mental Capacity Act Code of Practice provides really good explanation of the Act and the obligations of those working within it, particularly with health and uh, professionals and, and caring staff, and some really good pointers towards the deprivation of liberty. Yeah, and there is a separate deprivation of liberty, liberty safeguard codes practice, which is a really easy read, and and will sort of talk you through the process. Yeah, it's really good, actually. Mm. Yeah, really, really good. Okay, so in this episode we've talked a little bit about some of the ins and outs of deprivation of liberty safeguarding. Um, so if you've got any thoughts on that, please do let us know. Mm-hmm. We can be found on our website, which is www.hearingaidpodcast.org.uk. Or on Twitter, at MDT underscore podcast. And if you've got any comments on this, we run a tweet chat um, around this episode. So join in with that using the hashtag MDT Club. And the other hashtag we have is MDTeaser. The MDT Podcast. And now is the time for our MDT item guessing game, which is the round off to this episode. Joe, I think it's my go to go first this time, I think. Isn't go it? for it. Yeah, so this is a, an MDT themed guessing game, um, a bit like a catchphrase. Okay. Chris and Jackie so, are shaking their heads like yeah. we're not getting involved. So the really. first thing that comes up. Say what you see, say what you see. Yeah, say what you see. So the first, thing is a, the first thing is a stopwatch. And the, um, Time second, to up and go. Yes. <laughs> the stopwatch. So what was, what, what was the answer? It's timed up and go. It's where you measure how quickly someone walks, and it's wow. a marker of. So you sit down, you stand up, you walk quick. four meters, and you, you come back and you sit down, and it's time from start to finish. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Obviously, mine is more obscure. Okay, so in this picture, there is a sports arena. So let's say it's like a tennis court. And there are seven different people that are walking around with varying levels of um, ability to walk around. Some of them have got walking aids, some are walking completely independently, some are actually not able to walk at all or without significant assistance. Is it rehabilitation? No. Um, And then up in the corner, there's like a scoreboard with a score for each person for what they're doing here. Their varying abilities, and that's all you're getting. <laughs> Seven stages of murder, isn't it? Frailty score. Oh. Even said the word school. <laughs> I'm all weird. <laughs> Just silent enough. I let us know what you think. Yeah. What did you think of that? Let us know what you the think hashtag about it, yeah. And we've got one for you. We've got one for you. Head to our Twitter page, which is at mdt underscore podcast, and you'll see pinned to the. Uh, our profile, the latest version of this clue, and there'll be another bit of the clue revealed every week. Let us know what you think it might be. You could win a mug. Now we have two little poems for you uh, for the end of this episode. The first one is one that I'm going to give you, which is related to um, an old English Morris dancing song and rhyme. Well, I guess it's a nursery rhyme, really, that, that Morris dancers have have taken and used and it's called uh, there was an old woman tossed up in a blanket it's very short so <laughs> there was an old woman tossed up in a blanket 17 times as high as the moon where she was going i could not up but ask it for in her hand she carried a broom 
Old woman, old woman, old woman, said I. Oh, whither, oh, whither, oh, whither so high to sweep cobwebs from the sky. And I'll be back with you by and by and by. (laughs) (laughs) I recognise that one. And, And this one is called Old Song. And it says, the day is ending, the night descending, the heart is frozen, the spirit dead, but the moon is wending her way, attending to the other things that are left unsaid. And that is another poem that I found whilst doing bookbinding by W.H. Lawrence. The MDT will reconvene in two weeks. Dr. Wilkinson has previously received funding from Astellas and UCB Pharmaceuticals for delivering educational activities. The MDT Podcast is a Hearing Aid Podcast's Big Things Media Production. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. This podcast has been made possible from a technology-enhanced learning grant from Health Education England, spreading education throughout Kent, Surrey and Sussex. For more information, visit thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk.